نحن ما كنا بسوريا وانحرقت بيوتنا. They are not living in settlement because when they were in Syria, till like the war reached their place, their house was burned out and it was destroyed. So they came to Lebanon because. The brother of her husband is living next to this house in a farm, and he called them to come here because this house was already empty. There was nobody in this house, so they came here and they live. But it's not good because there is water leakage everywhere. So in winter, the water drops from everywhere from the roof. All the town was burned. She doesn't want to say who she feels maybe. Yeah, but all the all the town was burned. That's why everybody flew outside. Flew outside. After their house was burned, they didn't have any any other shelter. They stayed like two months visiting people or staying in other people's places. But yeah, after that they came here to Lebanon. عفاف الأحمد جوزي محمد خضر. Her name is Afaf. Her husband is Muhammad. They have been here in Lebanon for five years. She has seven children, six daughters, and one son, and they are all living in one room. Welcome to the sixth episode of Refugee Stories. My name is Jessica Stone, and today's episode is about Afaf. I've known Afaf socially for a couple of years. I've been to her house for dinner, I've met her husband and all of her children, and shared quite a few cups of tea and coffee with her. I like her a lot. She's hysterically funny, with an absurd, clownish ability for pulling funny faces and a great talent for making the whole room laugh without saying a single word. She's also cheeky and a bit of a rebel, with a fondness for sneaking puffs of other people's cigarettes, which is actually a bit of a taboo. Although many Syrian men seem to smoke like chimneys in Victorian England, it's not as acceptable for women to do the same. So I was surprised by how negative she seemed in this interview, when she's typically so silly and cheerful, Although hearing her story, it's easy to understand why. The journey between Lebanon and Syria, when they were traveling inside Syria to get to the Lebanese border, it was like a kind of horror, and they were afraid because attacks there were everywhere, and they can hear the sound of the bombs when on their way to the to Lebanon, but they like breathe and uh, it was much safer when they crossed the borders and they get here into Lebanon. It took them 13 hours to get from Aleppo to the Bika, which is too much because if there was no war, it will only take like five hours or maybe less. So it took 13 hours because she said there were a lot of checkpoints, what kind of horror on their way to, to Lebanon. So as you said, she's from Aleppo, from the suburbs sides of Aleppo, and they were living a good life there compared to here. And because at the end, like ultimately, it's their country and it's our own home. And but 
we are sorry for this and we are like disappointed for the situation that has led them here um, and here in Lebanon they are living but it's like kind of uh, a miserable uh, life and in Syria everything was uh, provided for them unlike here she says that uh, everything is difficult here and you can't compare it to Syria at all because for example in Syria they used to have three houses uh, sorry three rooms in their house one for the children one for her and her husband and one for the guests and now they are all sleeping in one room her daughter is 13 years old and now she's supposed to have her own room and this is not possible so the accommodation in Lebanon is really difficult and all the situation almost uh, like uh, miserable and the going to school is also not not easy because it's not safe and they're saying in Syria it was much much safer than here because they say here schools are for free but it's not because you have to pay for for the van and for other costs so it's not free and uh, yeah She's saying there is a school uh, close to their house here but it costs 250 dollars for the child for each student so they send them to Barlias. Barlias is a town like 10 minutes away from here by car it's a public school uh, they uh, pay 100,000 Lebanese zero which is like 66 dollars for the bus she pays a hundred dollar for a private teacher because the education system here is uh, in English and she doesn't know how to teach their children or do, to do their homework in English so she pays a hundred dollar for the private teacher and is this for all of the children okay yeah for the three of them I've mentioned in previous episodes just how difficult it is for the average Syrian family to send their children to school. Although the public education system is theoretically free for Syrian students, in practice, the associated costs like transport, school books, a school bag, and everything else make school a huge financial strain for many families, particularly in regions like the Bekaa Valley, where there are huge numbers of refugees and very limited numbers of public schools that will accept Syrians. Because I know Afaf and her family personally, I have an idea about their financial situation. And I have to say, I'm impressed that they go to the effort of finding the money for their children's education, particularly considering how very many children they have. Uh, she says that uh, we are the parents we tasted like uh, the time or the situation when when people are not educated like us so because we are not educated we can't do anything or we can't work or you know this what she's trying to explain that's why we are doing our best to pay for our children to educate because this is the generation and this is the time of knowledge this is the time of education um, so we don't want them to have like diplomas and high degrees the only thing we need them to if they are lost somewhere they can read instructions and they can read and write and for example now when some people come here uh, my my daughter at least tries to talk to try to talk to them so we deprive ourselves from like the daily bread as she says to give it to them and to educate our children 
صايرين شرسين she's saying I really lost my mind because of these children they are like act fiercely they always like going and coming they always shouting I lost my mind I don't know what to do so for example there is no proper house then you can just like prison them inside because sometimes we have shower we have lack of water but sometimes with the little of water I I let them have shower and like after seconds they just go outside play outside and come inside as if they didn't have a shower so yeah <laughs> she can't handle it anymore first she said that no of course in Syria it's much easier because everything is available you know especially house a proper house and and she said yesterday she was talking to her father to Syria and he asked her hey how are you and how is the family and he said hey dad I'm really stripped out is it said my kids stripped yeah make her like lost her mind uh, the children and uh, there are so many I already have seven children and it's too much for me and we are like struggling and stress for me all day um, yeah she so he said um, uh, like being sorry with her because they let her marry with a younger age yeah so she's not experienced enough to raise the children and is this is this typical for for your region that you usually marry quite young yeah this is something very normal when girls turn to 14 she must get married it is true that many girls marry at an age that we would consider very young in countries like Syria or Jordan. Before 2011, Syrian family law set the minimum legal age of marriage at 18 years for men and 17 years for women. But with the caveat that a religious judge can authorise marriages for men as young as 15 and for girls as young as 13. But only if the religious judge deemed the underage party to be willing and suitably mature whatever that could possibly mean for a 13-year-old girl. But in opposition-controlled areas, especially those controlled by radical factions, Syrian law is not followed and there is absolutely no legal minimum. And this tradition of child marriage has only intensified with the war and displacement. Before the war, about 13% of Syrian women were married before the age of 18. By 2013, the percentage had risen to 25%. This is because when parents are uncertain about the safety of their daughters, can't afford to send them to school, or struggle to feed all of their children, marrying a daughter off seems like a viable solution. Before, at least girls would probably be married off to somebody that the family knew well. But due to the war, social and community ties have been broken down. Some families are taking up marriage offers for their daughters that they wouldn't have before the war. Even sadder are the instances of forced marriage for women or girls who have been the victims of rape, whereby marrying the victim off means that the family can salvage some of their honour. These kinds of forced marriages are hardly unique to Syria, although they have intensified during the war, particularly in areas with large numbers of radicals. Indeed, forced marriages and abductions still exist in many places around the world, even today, as well as being an unpleasant feature of life for most women during the course of history. I don't need to tell you that child marriage is incredibly damaging. 
To start with, there is a much greater likelihood of sexual abuse or domestic violence, as well as very serious pregnancy and childbirth complications. In fact, a girl under 15 is five times more likely to die in childbirth than a grown woman. And these complications are actually a leading cause of death for girls aged 15 to 19 worldwide. It's not good for the baby either, as adolescent mothers are also more likely to have miscarriages, premature births and stillbirths compared to older mothers. Child marriage also isolates children from their family and friends. Girls who are married are much more likely to drop out of school, particularly after they fall pregnant or have children of their own. If a girl is being abused by her new husband, which is much more likely in the case of underage marriages, the isolation makes it very difficult for her to get help. And that's even before getting to the fact that sex with somebody under the minimum age of consent is a violation of their rights and should be considered sexual violence whether in the context of a marriage or not. The interesting thing is that mothers, like a faf, are almost always aware of this and are very resistant to letting their daughters marry young. According to UNHCR, female-headed households generally reject all offers of child marriage outright, regardless of financial gain. The reasons stated for these refusals were that their daughters were too young, and that they wanted their daughters to complete their education. And also that the mothers resented the image being perpetuated of Syrian girls as cheap and easy. Unfortunately, women typically don't make the decisions in these households. And so damaging child marriages continue. Of course not. She will not. If it comes to her hand, she will not let her daughters to marry in this age. She wants them to go experience, explore the world, explore their surrounding, and have like more education. Just to see this is good, this is wrong. To differentiate between this and this, and to have their own choice. Because I don't want uh, what happened with me to happen again with my children to taste like this bad uh, situation. So I just let them go and they choose whoever they want. I don't want them to be like me. At 14 I married, at 15 I got a child, at 18 I had three children. So I don't want this to happen for them. Yeah, because I really uh, suffered. So she had this idea in uh, in Syria, but unfortunately, it's out of their hand as girls, as women, as as a wife, because it always goes to the father and to the husband who take such decisions whether the girl should marry or not. But when she comes to when she came to Lebanon, it makes like her much more open and much in for this idea. So now, if it comes to her hand, she will not let any one of her daughters to marry at 14. children has um, a cleft palate, correct? They have a, this yeah. problem with um, the, yeah, we call it the uh, palate. Yeah, um, can you talk to us a little bit about how difficult or, or what it's been like trying yeah. to, to deal with this in, in Lebanon? Uh, so she suffered with the 
well, I don't know what they call it, like uh, here the cut of the shifts and, and the shift and um, in her lips, sorry. So she was born like this uh, with a cut here in her lips and they had to do a surgery after two months. And after this, they did the surgery because she was, uh, she couldn't drink milk properly, she could do nothing properly and she used to suffer from diabetes and they had this uh, surgery when she was two months and uh, she came back here to Lebanon after when she was almost a year and uh, unfortunately they they stopped this um, process of medication and she got a paper with her to Lebanon from Aleppo hospital that talks about her situation um, and it showed, it showed this paper for the UNHCR if they can do any kind of help, but unfortunately they didn't because they said we didn't, we don't cover this kind of surgeries. And uh, one of her friends recommended her a, a doctor in Stura, so they visited this doctor and they expected like to have a surgery with maximum two thousand dollars that they could do it, like go have debt from here and then from here just collect money to save their children or their, their daughter's uh, life and future but they were shocked when the when the doctor told them that this cost sixty thousand dollars yeah and they came back here to the house and she told her husband about this and of course he told her nothing he said let's keep it for syria in case one day we left back to syria yeah but unfortunately now when she grows up it's getting worse because sometimes when she's eating like rice or drinking water she suffocates you know, I'm saying it right. So she suffocates and she holds her quickly and goes outside just like to tap on her back and try to do something to make her like lose the pieces of rice that stuck in her, like in this part of the body. Third. Third, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and they are very sorry for her situation because they, are, they can do nothing with, uh, with her because it costs a lot of money. Afaf's daughter had what is known as an orofacial cleft, which is like a combination of a cleft lip, which is when there's a split in the top lip, and a cleft palate, which is when the roof of the mouth has a gap. Obviously, something like this can cause substantial problems. In addition to the eating problems that Afaf described, which meant that her daughter often underate because eating was so traumatic, or could only eat a small selection of foods in their already, frankly, limited diet, an orofacial cleft can also cause ear infections, which can lead to hearing loss, as well as speech problems and dental problems. Do you know why it's so expensive? Why is it so After this story about the $60,000, uh, like a few days after they were sitting outside and three of Salam's uh, volunteers uh, were walking by here and they met the family and they asked if you have any problem here and she told them about the, her daughter and they offered if we can help and if we can like make the surgery then both of the parents consent and said yes for this and they collected the money and went with Laren to Uteldio in the hospital in Beirut and they made the surgery and it only costed three thousand dollars and uh, now she is better if you see like she says if you see a picture of her before and after you will be like astonished uh, but the doctor told her, them that she must be followed up by special and private uh, schools for her situation 
these schools that teaches her how to pronounce properly, like the author, uh, the uh, the letters. Mm -hmm. uh, her problem that she's always pronouncing all letters with me, you know. Uh, so yeah, now she is better, but she have she has also to be always to be followed up by this special school. That original number, sixty thousand dollars, does seem pretty steep. I know. But it's entirely possible in a healthcare system like that in Lebanon, which is fragmented, largely privatized, and very hard for a refugee to navigate. UNHCR can only pay for so much, so they prioritize basic healthcare and emergencies rather than anything requiring complex surgery, long term care, or follow up treatment. What makes it trickier is that many refugees don't even know where they can go for free or subsidised healthcare, particularly if those clinics are far away. It makes it even harder if refugees have lower levels of literacy and might not be able to read brochures or documents well. Uh, she's saying that she would like to have a house and she would like to have a proper life because we are human and we deserve better life. We, she wants to have like a good education for her children, a good house, good health. She wants not to be deprived. She wants everything to be uh, like available for her. And uh, because like the house is the main point that she's uh, asking for because there are seven people and these seven people are sleeping in one room and some of them are sleep like directly next to the door. She's saying these are children and they deserve like to buy for them something new every like like every few few weeks or like every time but unfortunately I can't do it so sometimes uh, they use some people's clothes and uh, Every like every holiday, like every year, a year comes that I can buy something for them. Like once per year, that I buy something for my children who deserves to to have more things and like in their childhood. Okay, thank you for your time and thank you, thank you for talking to me. That was the sixth episode of Refugee Stories. This episode was made in association with Salam LADC. If you would like to donate, I recommend donating via PayPal at donation at Salam LADC. That's D-O-N-A-T-I-O-N at S-A-L-A-M-L-A-D-C dot org. Of course, as always, all statements are my own and not to be blamed on Salam in any way. They merely provided the support for this project of mine and should not be held responsible for my political beliefs or probable errors and misunderstandings. Yet again, this episode was sponsored by Hindenburg Audio Speed, the fantastic audio editing program that was used in the making of this episode. Head to their website, hindenburg.com, that's H-I-N-D-E-N, burg.com to learn more about this excellent program, particularly if you're interested in making your own podcast. For the music, thanks go to Axel Tree, Cellophane Sam, Kilt, Hawadafi, Lobo Loco, Poddington Bear, Yusuf Tej, and Young Pictures of Florence Henderson. 
Yet again, an enormous and very grateful thanks to Mohammed Hamoud for his hard work translating. He was super tired this day and he did a great job. As ever, thanks go to Miguel Isota Sanchez. And thank you also to Afaf herself and all the other refugees who let me into their homes and trusted me with their stories. I can only hope that these stories go out into the world and help others to understand the situation. And finally, my name is Jessica Stone. I'm the writer and producer of this podcast. Thank you for listening to a fast story.